Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. As I said, we'll be in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 23. Um, we're going through this uh, last portion of 2 Samuel as we have reminded every time we've come to this port point that here's uh, not just merely just add-on stories. The author at this point, uh, either Nathan or Gad, has is, is specifically put these stories together in a specific order as well. Uh, that there are six stories at the end of Second Samuel. Uh, it begins with Saul's sin um, and uh, David making atonement for Saul's sin of him breaking a covenant. Um, and then David's men, that memorial of the uh, four men who uh, defeated giants as uh, David is unable to go into battle. He's too important. And then uh, last uh, couple of weeks, we looked at Psalm 22, which is a psalm, really, uh, Psalm 18, actually. Um, but it, here it is in Second uh, Samuel chapter 22 of um, a song that David had, had written towards the end of some point in his kingship, probably towards the end of his life. And today we uh, find ourselves looking at the uh, last words of David, and then we go back to David's men. Again, you can kind of see this, uh, how it's structured. Uh, Saul's sin is at one end, and then in chapter 24 it's David's sin, and how he needs to atone for his own sin. Uh, you have David's men either side of that, the four to begin with, the uh, mighty men as we'll look at next week. And then in the middle you have these two songs or words, um, speeches you might say, a psalm and then these last words here. And this is really the center of this point of what is David's kingdom about? How does David understand his kingdom? And how does David um, understand how God has moved in these ways? So tonight we find ourselves in an interesting passage, not necessarily because of the words. I think if we were to read this, I think we'd uh, understand where we are. But uh, it's interesting because where we find ourselves, again, we're in Second Samuel, historical narrative of, of the books of the Bible, as, as we might uh, generally know of, um, you know, the majority of the Bible is given to us in stories. And uh, here we are in Second Samuel as we've been working through. Um, you know, and we know these big categories of uh, psalms, narrative, epistles, prophecy. Uh, really, there's three major categories in the Bible, speeches, songs, and stories. Speeches uh, as a letter uh, is given to us. Most of the prophecy uh, books are centered around speeches, um, words given from one person to a specific other person or group of people. Uh, then you have songs and you know, we have psalms and stories as we've been looking through. And most of us, when we think about songs, we think about psalms. Um, that's generally the category we have, and obviously it's the largest book in the Bible, 150 chapters. Um, but it's probably better known as wisdom literature or, or poetry or something broader than just songs, because it includes more than just um, how we would say um, you know, the book of Psalms, we have Proverbs, the Song of Songs, we have Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, Job, all of these would be counted as wisdom literature, and each of them are how you, you know, helps us understand it. And now we find ourselves in Second Samuel chapter 23. It's familiar because we know the, the Psalms quite well, but it, it's not really a Psalm per se. Um, 
it, it, it's, we're told what it is. We'll get to that shortly. But uh, we often think about those categories, and um, it's helpful for us to understand what we're reading. And again, we'll, um, you know, even when we think about Psalms as a whole, we're, we generally put Psalms in two categories, prayer or praise. And then when we get to diff- different Psalms, like impeccatory Psalms, then we're at a loss. We don't know how to be able to read those impeccatory psalms. We'll look at that one of those um, uh, in uh, Psalm 94 uh, in a couple of weeks in our evening service. Um, but here we have uh, the beginning uh, in chapter 23 where it tells us what this is, what we are reading. Now, it is called the last words of David. Now, if you've thought about this at all, you turn the chapter... Um, chapter 24, and writing verse 2, So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. So you have the last words of David, then you turn the page, and you find David speaks more words. And now we've mentioned this last section of 6 is not necessarily chronologically in order. Um, that it doesn't all just happen afterwards, after the um, Absalom incident, that uh, it's in some time in his reign, we're not told specifically where these events all happen. So, what does this then mean to have last words? Of course, you uh, there's always people that come up and start complaining about, um, you know, these being the last words, but yet there's more words uh, later, but... Uh, you know, there's always going to be those easy outs, I think, that people try and make those slam dunk arguments that just say, see, the people who wrote the Bible have no idea what they're talking about. They, uh, they got these stories, put them all together, and then they didn't read them. They didn't think about these type of things. They just didn't understand what the last words actually meant. Now, uh, obviously, we're not going to take that approach, um, but it is um, possible that these are the last words that come out of David's mouth. Now, we, we can just assume that these aren't chronologically in order, so these are the last words that come out. Now, out of all the, um, it's possible, but as I said before, it's unlikely. Um, it's not in order, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. I think that you see, even in First Kings chapter 2, um, you see that uh, when David's time to draw, die drew near, He commanded Solomon his son, saying, I'm about to go away of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies, as written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. The Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness in all their heart, with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So here you have David, and the text specifically tells us that as his time to die is drawing near, he comes and summons Solomon. So it is possible these are his literal last words out of his mouth, but it seems that First Kings kind of implies that uh, these words here are kind of as on death on um, Solomon uh, David's deathbed. So then the, we're left with a second option, and that is these are the last official words of David. That uh, here is David, and here uh, 
there were certain uh, responsibilities as a king. Um, just because a king speaks doesn't mean that that carries the same authority in every time and situation. Obviously, there's something else from a decree coming from a king with a signature, with a you know, in a sealed envelope that is more official. That that, that doesn't mean that it's always um, that that everything a king says. Now, we in the Roman Church, they have papal decrees. And a papal decree is a decree that the, the Pope submits and says on this throne on his throne, and it has carries more authority than other things. Now we don't believe in that papal decree, but it is a good example. But this is again possible that this is his last official words. But it, uh, he he is referred to again in First Kings as a king. And that is one thing that actually highlights in, again, 1 Kings chapter 1, just before this, he speaks to Solomon. And the king David answered and called Bathsheba to me, so she came to into him, the king's presence and stood before the king. Again, see the, the, the connection that they're saying King David, but specifically he's referred to as the king. The emphasis in this passage, he's not merely just acting as David, he's acting as the king. And the king swore, saying, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so I will do this day. And Bathsheba bowed her face to the ground and paid homage to the king, and said, May my lord King David live forever. So again, here we have a situation that is um, toward the end of David's life, um, and he makes an official decree as king that the next in line is his son Solomon, and he swears this to Bathsheba. And the key part of the key emphasis of this passage in First Kings chapter one is that he is the king who's making this decree. So again, it is all possible that these, these words follow after this decree, and this is his last decree. But um, we don't have to then take it literally to mean his last words. One commentator helped point this out, and he, he described it as more of a last will and testament, that it is a, a official in, in some decree, but, but it, it's not necessarily like toward the end of his life, you write a will to be uh, read at the end of your life, but you can write it any time before your life comes. So uh, the commentator says this, prophetic will and, will and testament of the great king unfolding the importance of his rule in relation to the sacred history of the future. So here it's one of these um, things that he could have written beforehand. And... Uh, we can understand this then if we understand a repast, not just these are the last words of David as the narrator says, but contained in the words of actual David as he writ- written them, the oracle of David, uh, the oracle of the man who was right. He uses this term oracle. Now we have uh, Jacob and Moses both um, on their deathbeds who uh, bless their sons or the nation of Israel. And it's clear in those passages that this is right before he's about to die. I think that, that is what we see in Second, uh, 1 Kings chapter 2, but not here in this time. And they're um, not so much about the past. They're about future blessings, inheritance, what will come following their death. So this is a great example to look at to see the understanding of um, what is coming to uh, 
when it comes to the Messiah? How did David understand his relationship to his uh, king, God, and uh, the promised Messiah to come? Uh, Peter in Acts chapter 2 says, Brothers, I may stay, uh, say to you the confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So here Peter is able to be able to look back at David's life specifically, and he says that he is a prophet. He knows what God had promised him about his son, but he also says that he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. Um, so, let's look at these words of David, and then we'll go through them um, and study them. So, here's uh, 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 1 to 7. Now, these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His, words is on, his word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made me an everlasting covenant, ordering in all things, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? Both worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the Lord who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. So here's uh, David's last words, um, last will and testament you might uh, summarize, but I found this uh, structure very helpful in a commentary by uh, John Woodhouse, and sometimes you see the structure in there and you can't unsee it. It's hard to be able to see it, so all credit is where credit is due. Um, the structure is his. Anything else that is false is then mine. Um, but here's the, the structure that uh, John Woodhouse puts forward. That uh, In the start of the psalm, we see David, God's king. And then the second portion is what God said to David. And then the word of God and God's covenant with David and the enemies of God and his king. And what we see here in this structure is the first and the fifth are opposites. The... Uh, their king, God's king, and then what's happening to God's king and his enemies. Uh, the two and the four then corresponded with how God has dealt with David. And then three is the middle, the center, the, what you call a chiasm, driving towards the middle. And this is the bit that is the important part, the uh, position of importance. So we'll begin with David, uh, God's king. We see this in the positive in the first section and the negative in part 5. That here it says at the beginning, the Oracle of David. Now this is the uh, title that David had written, the uh, narrator 
the uh, author of Second Samuel has put in these as their last words of David to be able to help us understand this. But here, David is saying that he calls this an oracle, this declaration used two times in Second Samuel chapter two, verse thirty, a declaration about uh, God and His judgment, and then uh, two times here in Second Samuel chapter um, uh, twenty-three. So David, in the beginning, tells us four things about himself. He first tells us that he is the son of Jesse. And I think he begins with this to be able to remind us of his heritage. But also, we know uh, the son of Jesse. We know the name Jesse. But Jesse is not a world-class ruler that would have been known if not for David. It's just like Boaz and um, Obed and, and all that family tree. We only know of that because as the book of Ruth ends... It is all driving towards David, the descendant of these men. And he begins and says he's the son of Jesse. And we're reminded of his humble beginnings when uh, Samuel went to uh, Jesse's house. And when these young men answered, um, this young man who's in the courts uh, speaking to Saul, and said, uh, I have seen the son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, pruned in speech, and a man of good presence. The Lord is with him. So he reminds us of these humble beginnings of where David comes from. He comes not from a house of kings or rulers. He comes from uh, the sheep pen where he's watching uh, his father's flock and the lowest on the food chain, the youngest of seven brothers. The second thing that he tells us about himself, that he is... This is the oracle of the man who was raised on high. So looking back on his rule and reign, he understands that he begins in humble beginnings, but he also is in this position, nothing because of what he has done. He has been raised by someone else. He has been raised high, and that is nothing of what he has done. Uh, you remember throughout the time of, in First and Second Samuel how often David would say things like this, but I am but a dog. He, he would not say this in a, a boastful, humble way, that he truly believes, who am I that I would have this conversation with you? The third thing that he tells us about himself, that he is the, the anointed of the God of Jacob, that he has been set apart. He has been set apart to this position. He has been raised high to this position of king of Israel, the shepherd of Israel, uh, by God, the God of Jacob. So we see this even before. We saw this right at the very last verse there of uh, chapter 22. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Again, you see these connections from Second uh, Samuel right towards the end and all the way back to First Samuel with the prayer of Hannah. And this is what Hannah prayed in, in First Samuel chapter 2. Uh, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them uh, he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge to the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So Hannah's prayer is all about bringing low which is high and bringing high which is low. And here he finishes there by saying that he will exalt the horn of his anointed. And David at the end of his reign, some point in the end of his reign, he's able to be able to look back and says, God is the one who has anointed me. 
But also see how he doesn't just go back to 1 Samuel chapter 2 with Hannah's prayer. He also goes back all the way to Genesis. That he sees that the God who has raised him on high is the God who fulfills the promises which were given to Jacob as well. And uh, you turn your back, turn back to Genesis chapter 35. And, and this is what uh, the God says to Jacob. I am the God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. And kings shall come from your own body. And here David is able to say that not only I'm anointed by God, I'm anointed by God as he's fulfilled all these promises that were made to Jacob way back in Genesis chapter 35. Now up to this point, really, David has, has been speaking about what God has done for him. His humble beginnings are nothing of, of his boasting, but here he has been raised on high by God, anointed of the God of Israel. But here he finishes by saying the sweet psalmist of Israel. Now this translation speaks of David as the psalmist, the sweet psalmist. Now there's no denying that translation. Um, it's a difficult tra- verse to be able to translate. Actually, um, Del Ruff Davis actually says the Hebrew in, in all of this is, is kind of difficult to translate because you think about poetry and things like this. Poetry is... is even how we read poetry, there there'll be times where we skip words because they need to fit in or they need to, and, and so too with Hebrew, that it's not necessarily they're writing a long discourse about what is happening and putting all the details in there. Sometimes you've got to be able to understand what they're talking about. And again, Del Ruff Davis calls the Hebrew terse. So some have, have said that this is more better translated, Israel's singer of songs. Now, most of it carries that same connection to the Psalms, the singer. But the key is the Israel part. Again, he is the singer of the promises of Israel as a form of worship and praise to God, the promise keeper. So here are these pieces, these pieces of information we get of uh, speaking to God and role as David's life as we've seen very well as we've studied first and second Samuel. David is humble and he understands his humble beginnings. He understands where and why he is now king of Israel. And what he does is then drives it back to be able to give glory and honor to God. So you have here the first part of God's king David. Now you jump to the last portion in verses 6 and 7 and you see the enemies of God and his king. In verses 6 and 7, there's the contrast. Here you have God raising up David. But what does he say about his enemies? David's enemies, God's enemies, they're the same enemies. But he says, but worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot uh, be taken with the hand. But the one, the man who touches them, arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear. And they are utterly consumed with fire. You see now that God is the one who has raised up David. And what is God doing as well? He is bringing down the haughty. Again, right back to uh, Hannah's prayer. The Lord kings, kills and brings life. He brings down to Sheol. He raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He makes... He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts up the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit the seat of honor for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. So here you see that 
The, the lowly are in the ashes and the God brings them up. But what does he do with the people that are high? He brings them down into the consuming fire. They turn into ashes. And there's this beautiful arc and this poetry in that image. And for David, it's quite simple. He often will, through the Psalms, through, you know, uh, through the Psalms, he'll, he'll paint pictures. There's two, two ways to live, two outcomes. You see that clearly in Psalm 1. But here, again, we're reminded all the way back through what was studied in First and Second Samuel, the, the worthless men, as he says. These worthless men in First and Second Samuel, Eli's sons, both worthless men. Why they're worthless? They did not know the Lord. Unholy priests. And then what is this in verse 10? But some of the worthless fellows who were questioning... Uh, Saul and been, him being anointed as king, and, he, and they, they questioned, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. So here's these um, worthless men mocking the king. And then verse 25, remember the story of Nabal, the fool, that he is a worthless fellow. As his name is, he is. Nabal is his name, folly is with him. As Abigail speaking to David. And then uh, quite recently in Second Samuel chapter 20, verse 1, there you have um, the worthless man, Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite, that I have no portion in David and no inheritance in the son of Jesse. So here you see worthless men are people that are, are um, in, uh, in Judges chapter 19, it, it, it speaks of those who are sinful, uh, like the, those in Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, the Benjamite clans in Gilbert. So you have the worthless men, but in First and Second Samuel, it, it is often used to, to, to depict those who are standing in opposition to God's anointed king. That here they're right, raising up, speaking against his king, and saying that we will have no portion with God's anointed king. And what's the outcome of that? Who then say that we don't want God's anointed king? Well, he says in verses 6 and 7, they're like thorns. They'll be thrown away. But they'll be utterly consumed with fire. Here's the outcome. They end up in fire again. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. What happens to those people? There's the blessed one who walks on the blessed path, but what happens to the wicked? Right at the very end. The wicked are not so. They're not like the tree planted by the streams of water who yields its fruit in its season. They're like chaff. The wind drives them away. The wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So here you have God raising up King David here and then bringing down those who oppose King King David, but not necessarily just because he's King David. It's because he's the anointed of the Lord. He's put in that position because God has placed him there. So now we're moving in to the next level. What did God say to David? We see this uh, to begin with in verses 2 and 3. The Spirit of the Lord speaks to me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. Here we see again of David's glimpse of his reign. 
that right at the very beginning, when he was anointed, that he took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed on David from that day. And David, at the end of his life, understands this when he says, The Spirit of the Lord speaks to me. He understands. But I also want to point out that here we have an Old Testament passage that quite clearly understands the Spirit's role and the Spirit's role in carrying the uh, author of the Bible and the Spirit's role in, in revealing God's Word to His people. Again, Paul will write about it in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3. We know this verse all too well. All Scripture is breathed out by God. And here, David is basically saying that in an Old Testament passage, saying, the Spirit of God speaks to me. The wind of God, Ruah, speaks to me. And this is what David is saying, that we see here that inspiration, the breath of Yahweh speaks to me. So we have part two, and then that's paired with part four, God's covenant with David in verse five. For he has made me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? For he has made an everlasting covenant. Ask the question, what about David? Did David know about uh, what he was told in Second Samuel chapter 7. And we can clearly see from passages like this that David knew what God had promised to him. David understood when God had told him, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a, him, to him a father, and he shall be a son. When he commits iniquity, I shall discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, who, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And here David, at the end of his life, is however close it is to the end of his life, he looks back and he understands that promise that was made to him in Second Samuel chapter 7. And he understands that God is the one who has made with him an everlasting covenant. He understands the perpetual uh, nature of the covenant God has made with him, that this will happen forever. Even in the rest of the chapter, you see um, in chapter 7, in, in verse 24, in verse 25, in verse 26, in verse 29, this ongoing nature of, of David understanding that this covenant that God is making with him is one that will last forever. We'll remember last week, right in verse 51. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and who? His offspring forever. He understood that, that God made this covenant with him that would last forever. What about this covenant? It is ordered and secure and ordered in all things. Now, good Presbyterian loves a good verse like this about everything being ordered. Uh, here it is that God has ordered things, but I think a good word to focus on there is secure. That this uh, everlasting covenant that God has made with David is uh, kept, uh, he watches over it, it's guarded, it's preserved. Again, think about um, in Psalm 121, 
I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Here David, uh, well in Psalm 121, we see the author implying what is God? God is the keeper. And here God has made the covenant with David and he it's an eternal covenant and God is going to keep um, uh, him secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and desire again? Lift my eyes up to my hill, to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. You see even this, these connections in there. But here we, we drive now to the middle, the middle of this uh, portion of uh, David's last words, the word of God in verses 3, the end of verse 3 to the start of verse 5, where here is what it was spoken. The one rules justly over men, ruling in fear of God. He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? Here is the central part of David's oracle, this declaration about David and his kingdom that will, as he looks backwards, but also looks forward when one rules justly over men, here he is ruling with the fear of God. He understands that this is a key to David's kingdom and his ruling. That David is a king, a man who rules over other men. But he does so as he rules over other men, he is under God's law. So he, as he administers God's law to other men, he is under law himself to be able to carry that forward. But also, not only is under God's law, he is under God, the giver of the law. So he understands that as he rules, God is the one who rules over him. And again, as we think about where this is placed in the, in the narrative of the story of Israel Judges finishes, in, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what is right in his own eyes. Here's that downward spiral of what is happening. They've, they've forgotten the Lord. Lord. They've forgotten God's law. They've neglected his ways. They're the holy nation that was once called out to be set apart as a holy nation because God, their God is holy, is worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. And everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. And here at the end of 2 Samuel, David is looking back and says, the righteous king is the one who is underneath God himself. This is exactly what Samuel highlighted in 1 Samuel chapter 8. When the people came to him and said, give us a king to judge us. Samuel goes to the Lord, he prays, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that you say to do. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. 
So they thought that if we get a human king, we don't need God to be king. But David, at the end of his reign, says, no, you don't understand it. The one who rules justly over men is ruling in the fear of the Lord. He is a king underneath the law, underneath the law giver. It's exactly what Samuel highlights again in 2 Samuel chapter 12, this warning about what this king will be like. You want a king, you want a king, you'll get a king, but just be warned. The Lord your God was your king. And now behold the king whom you have chosen for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. And if you both, you and the king who reigns over you, will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now therefore stand still and see the great thing the Lord will do before your eyes. Is this not wheat harvest day? And I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. And you shall know and see the wickedness is great. Your wickedness is great. And what which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Here Samuel says, you want your king, you've got your king. But you still need to obey the king, God. If you don't, if your king doesn't obey, if you don't obey, things will not go well. But here David at the end understands this principle that Samuel laid out. That he is one that is underneath that. That David understood, he knew, he understands his prayer in chapter 7, verse 18 to the end. That he understood what was happening. And as we saw, as we looked at chapter 7, one of the portions that we looked at was the promise kept. That the kingdom would come to David's offspring, that it would be established by God, that built by the offspring, the kingdom would be eternal, the king would be led by God's son. All of this found in the fulfillment of Christ. That Christ is the offspring of David. That Christ was sent to establish God's kingdom. That Christ would build his house. That Christ reigns for eternity. That Christ is God's son. And here, toward the end of his life, David understands this all too well because a part of the promise that God made in 2 Samuel chapter 7 was found in verse two, uh, 12 where he says, For your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your own body, your body, and I will establish his kingdom. That here David understood this promise, and as he looks back, he understands that he is a king underneath the king, that God is the one who has kept his promises secure, that he has made his promises complete. So much so, again, in Acts, we look at how now Paul understands this, and he says in Acts chapter 13, And we bring you good news that God promised to the fathers. This he has fulfilled to us and their children by raising Jesus. As it was written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, 
I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Here David understands that he is the one who will die, pass away, his son will be raised. He will not see corruption. David understood this. And how do you know David understood this? Well, you can turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 23, these seven verses. And you see what David understood about his kingdom. How he understood that God has placed him there. This eternal nature of uh, the promise of God. One person summarized the whole book of First and Second Samuel in the line of the Lord's Prayer, Your Kingdom Come. And here David understands, Your King and Your Kingdom Come, Lord, after I am gone, after my body sees corruption, after my, uh, I've been laid down with my fathers. Let Your King come and reign for all eternity. So here David is praying that line in the Lord's Prayer, Let Your King and Your Kingdom Come, O Lord. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.